Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey now, it is the Hot Wallet Podcast. I'm Scott McGregor at Scott Trades on Twitter. Get a pen, get some paper, and get ready to take notes. Because we are joined with 42 Macros, Darius Dale. And he is going to give us a macro masterclass. From the bottom, make no half stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Okay, let's go. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, an investment research firm that aims to disrupt the financial services industry by democratizing institutional grade macro risk management frameworks and processes. Prior to founding 42 Macro, Darius was a managing director and partner at Hedgeye and joined the firm after graduating from Yale. Darius, thanks for making the time for me today, man. I've been a big fan of yours for years. I thought the work you did over at Hedgeye was good, but I think what you're doing now is even better. So congratulations on all your success, and thanks again for making time for me today. It's a real pleasure. It's an honor to be here, Scott, man. We just continue to grind and continue to get better and evolve, man. That's all you can do in this industry. Definitely. So my first question, Darius, is what the hell is going on in markets right now? <laughs> that is the loaded question of loaded questions, my friends. So uh, if I can be sort of quick and we can unpack any of this, um, there's a lot of uh, different cross currents. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned one phrase that I, I think is very important to kind of uh, spend some time unpacking, which is macro risk management. Uh, macro is kind of, you know, anything that could tick, anything that could shock the economy or asset markets. But from a macro risk management perspective, macro risk management takes all those sort of big things, that that wide umbrella and distills it down to the first principles, the core things that actually matter most um, in terms of, you know, uh, determining the sector and style factor dispersion within asset markets, determining dispersion across asset markets and ultimately kind of the returns investors are filling in that portfolio. So answering your question, what is happening from a macro risk management perspective, there's sort of four big things that matter. There's the growth cycle, there's the inflation cycle, there's the liquidity cycle, and then there's the positioning associated with all of that. Right now, we're in a cyclical slowdown from a growth perspective. That cyclical slowdown is likely to start to sort of um, speed up, if you will. So things will start to get worse at a faster pace. Uh, th- our model suggests that's likely a 2H22 event. Uh, right now, we're still very much in a, an inflation, a positive inflation impulse. Um, our models continue to support or see uh, inflation momentum continuing to build, particularly in some of the uh, more stickier parts of the um, inflation spectrum. And so that's likely to continue to have us in a very adverse consequence from a liquidity cycle perspective, Fed redrawing uh, balance sheet support, Fed uh, hiking uh, rates, and, and and not just the Fed, but you, we got about 95% of global central banks tightening monetary policy right now. So that's a big issue uh, from a liquidity cycle perspective. And then lastly, the positioning cycle in terms of where our asset, how our investors positioned. On one hand, you have um, asset or active managers, particularly the hedge fund community, they sort of delevered. And are not uh, as 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 running with the same kind of capital at risk, value at risk that they had been really uh, prior to the year. But you also have this massive passive uh, influence over markets, 
that at any point in time, particularly when the labor market starts to um, deteriorate, uh, could really come unglued and cause some real significant adverse consequences, just given where household ownership of equities is relative to the historical um, historical level. So uh, we can unpack any of that. I think it's a it's a pretty interesting time to be an investor, pretty interesting time to be a process oriented investor, because right now, if you don't have a process, particularly a, a good macro risk management process, you are confused as hell. Yeah. I mean, even in the active investing area, which is kind of where I live as a as a swing trader, it has been a rough year. It's been it's been really rough. You know, I typically will trade a nice trending market, uh, you know, buy close to support or buy breakouts. And and both of those have been really hard to do in this right. uh, in this uh, last uh, couple of months here. All what right. would you say, Darius, is the most important macro factor today that you think active investors should pay attention to yeah so i mean it's it's going to be number unfortunately it's it's probably pretty obvious right it's it's the reduction in liquidity uh, out of the fed and the and the tightening path that the fed has sort of laid forth for us one i think there's kind of two things you could sort of um dig into there one there's the forward guidance aspect of that and how that's already contributed to some pretty outsized financial tightening particularly in the credit markets You've seen a three sigma rise in mortgage rates, a three sigma rise in corporate credit yields. If you look at the Bloomberg Barclays yield to worse um, uh, credit statistics uh, index. And so we're already starting to see a lot of that tightening flow through the economy much faster than we ha would have historically seen um, just, you know, without in the absence of that forward guidance function. So we are sort of in no man's land as it relates to what the kind of, quote unquote, long and variable lag is with respect to monetary policy, tightening or easing and its impact on the economy and ultimately asset markets. And so I think that's a pretty um, important kind of thing that investors need to pay attention to um, because again, it's, we're obviously gonna to continue to get tightening and if inflation continues to surprise to the upside as it has really over the last six to nine months, actually really 11 months now <laughs> and almost 12 most likely, uh, you know, we're gonna to continue to get incremental tightening from a forward guidance perspective, which ultimately means incremental tightening from a realized asset market perspective. Um, the second most important thing, and I, I would go 1A and 1B here, I wouldn't necessarily go 1 and 2, uh, which is the growth cycle. Right now, we sort of we've had this sort of brief respite in what had been a trending cyclical deterioration off the sort of Q2 cycle peak and growth that we observed last year. That was obviously very much uh, aided and abetted by, you know, a pretty aggressive uh, fiscal stimulus program, you know, one of many uh, fiscal stimulus programs we've, we, we were sort of seeing authorized throughout the pandemic. And so now we're kind of on the backside of that. Um, not only just from a base effects perspective, but we're also returning back to potential growth or whatever that looks like on a post-pandemic basis. But we're also in the middle of that. We're getting that fiscal drag component um, that's obviously likely to continue to push growth lower, offsetting that. Obviously, you continue to have a decent amount of cash savings built up in household balance sheets. We can see that through the flow of funds data. But again, if the cash savings tend to be very, very uh, not um, distributed evenly, it's our estimation that sort of the lower median of, of households have already burned through a lot of their cash savings and are are sort of really kind of eating it from a, from a real income and consumption um, um, uh, appetite perspective. Darius, you mentioned the Federal Reserve a few times. Mm -hmm. What role does the Federal Reserve play in markets? Uh, you touched on it a bit with injecting liquidity, taking away liquidity. Other than that, what role do they play? And do you think they're doing a good job? And if not, why aren't they? Yeah, so so let's start about what, what's the Fed's mandate. Right? So what, the role they play is a little bit different than their mandate, right? 
their mandate is to promote maximum and inclusive employment, at least according to them, that that and inclusive was added to the to the to their implicitly added to their framework going back to the fall of 2020. Um, they're also here to promote price stability. And what that means in terms of their inflation mandate and inflation target is, you know, to thereabouts 2% on core PCE with some flexibility to the upside or downside to make up for, you know, prior shortfalls or, or prior runs higher uh, than, the, than, the, than the target. Um, and ultimately what that's transitioned to in terms of the Fed's ultimate impact on the economy and asset markets is through what we consider to be their sort of implicit third mandate. And that's the price, that's the uh, sort of financial conditions uh, function to make sure that capital markets are are buoyant, not necessarily buoyant, but certainly functioning uh, at a rate that allows the economy to, to grow and not have to deal with some you know adverse consequences from a credit and counterparty risk perspective. So the Fed sort of has this sort of, you know, kind of tertiary financial stability mandate that in the post-crisis era, in the absence of, you know, kind of a buildup in the leverage cycle that could really perpetuate a recession. And certainly in the absence of, you know, prior to the last kind of year or so, in the absence of a sustained impulse in inflation that would prevent them from, you know, being as easy as they were on a, on a perpetual basis, the financial st conditions, the financial stability mandate has really been their, their driving mandate in terms of how the Fed has interacted with the economy and asset markets. And so as investors, we're all feeling a little awkward right now because it's been quite some time since that hasn't been the case, it's by our estimation that you know the, when the Fed decided to bail out long-term capital management, they had shifted to a sort of financial stability mandate um, as their primary mandate, um, and have really been operating under that for the most part, um, absent a few months here or there. Really been operating under that mandate or under that framework since uh, up until this most recent kind of era where the Fed is clearly um, and overtly focused on um, containing and quashing inflation. Uh, at the expense uh, of the economy and asset markets. When the Fed reacted coming out of the pandemic crisis or that big you know, downdraft that we had, I've heard some people say, well, if they didn't, real bad things would have happened. Mm -hmm. Do you subscribe to that idea that they had to act or else real trouble would have happened? And what is taking them so long to, or what had been taking them so long to kind of shift their narrative? Because I agree with a lot of those people and they say, look, the Fed needed to step in and they did and they did it quick and that was great. Mm -hmm. But then they're a little long in the tooth in terms of, to your point, removing some of that liquidity. So why do you think they were so quick to react on one end and so slow on the other? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, because I hadn't had anybody, uh, Scott, put it to me that way. Like they're panicking in this direction, but they don't seem to have that same level of panic. Um, in the other direction, right? And and quite frankly, it comes down to they, they just got the inflation forecast wrong. I mean, all by the way, all economists did, including myself. Um, you know, we certainly thought inflation would be peaking last fall um, at about you know, a couple hundred basis points lower than it is today. We got this sort of what I, we would consider to be this fourth wave of inflation that was lar in large part brought on by the supply incremental supply chain disruption stemming from the uh, the geopolitical unrest and then sad situation over in Ukraine. So it's not like any of us could have saw that coming, but certainly the Fed could have begun as an Alan Greenspan Fed and certainly a Paul Volcker Fed would have done, uh, would have been reading the inflation cycle tea leaves going back to the spring of last year and really starting to see the likelihood that we were gonna get a big uh, big wave higher in inflation and start to pull back some of that stimulus. Why were they so late? So let me just go back to the initial part of the question, why we're so quick to panic um, in, the, in the spring of 2020. Um, there had become, you know, so this was, the, the spring of 2020 was fresh off the kind of blow up in the repo market that we saw in the fall of, you know, kind of in the summertime, in the fall, early fall 
of 2019. And so the Fed had been in very sort of keen on understanding, you know, how the financial system works, its impact on the financial system. This is, you know, obviously a series of, you know, information gathered, um, really going back to the uh, Q4 of 18 when the market crashed on, you know, kind of a mismatch between Fed policy and the growth outlook. So that ever since that moment, the Jay Powell Fed has been sort of trying to gather and learn as much as it can about how these markets actually function, repo, you know, the treasury market um, and the impact uh, on the broader sort of uh, financial balance sheet um, in terms of all these different tools that the Fed is using to, to drain liquidity or add liquidity. And I think what happened in March of 2020 was the breakdown in the treasury market. You know, we saw real interest rates gap higher on the long end of the treasury curve. We saw a big, big route, um, you know, sort of big, big squeeze higher in the dollar. We saw a lot of the um, associated counterparty risk um, measures uh, really blow out in that in that particular moment. So the Fed realizing that you know it's it's you know it's prior mistakes and realizing the kind of ultimate impact it could have on stemming some of that um, you know some of that 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 those the, those adverse those consequences really kind of stepped up to the plate in a major way. Um, quite frankly, I, I would commend them for doing that because quite frankly, it was a really scary time. You know, not many of us have lived through a pandemic and a global shutdown. Fast forward to the spring of 2020 when i think in retrospect um because i didn't hear a lot of people saying it at the time but certainly in retrospect the fed should have begun removing liquidity at that particular juncture because it had become pretty clear that the us was on on the verge of a, of something that looked like a much much higher much much above trend inflation uh moment inflation impulse um you know you go back to the fed the the treasury authorized uh, congress and the treasury authorized another let's call it two trillion dollars in fiscal stimulus at the time where the economy was already growing above trend, right? So that that's, that that's the that that should have been a a trigger for the Fed to say, hey, look, we understand that you have this new maximum, quote unquote, and inclusive, because I think the and inclusive is the reason we're here. We understand that you have this new and inclusive mandate, and what I mean by and inclusive is historic. The Fed pivoted back in the fall of 2020 to adopt a, a framework on around their labor market, sort of um their their gauging the gauging of the labor market conditions to sort of um, make, create additional space for the economy to improve, you know, for what had been historically disaffected groups like females, African-Americans, Latinos, those types of groups who've historically seen their unemployment rates decline at a much slower pace and for, you know, and, and much slower and at a much slower rate um, than we've seen, you know, kind of in post crises or post, you know, and during recoveries. And so the Fed has effectively said, hey, look, we understand that there's this sort of, you know, dynamic going on in the economy. We're, we want to be quote unquote woke and we're going to do something about it by easing more than we otherwise would. Well, guess what? That's why we're here today. It's not only reason why we're here today, but it's certainly why the Fed is now playing catch up at a pretty, um, pretty aggressive pace. We've heard the Biden administration uh, talk about the Ukraine as well and Ukraine having a big impact on inflation. Do you see that in the data? Yeah. So, I mean, you can definitely see that uh, Ukraine... Yes. So the, the the quick answer is yes. It's not just you know geopolitical consequences in Ukraine, but we know this. We know you get food inflation at a twelve percent on a three month annualized basis. That's as high as it's been um, since November nineteen eighty, and that's obviously contributing to elevated headline CPI as well. You know, it's eleven percent on an annualized basis. That's the fastest pace we've seen since September eighty one. Obviously, the big impulse that we got in energy prices in the month of March is really driving that. You know, it's up right around sixty four percent on a three-month annualized basis. But that that's just headline. It's not just headline. I think the, the one thing that's sort of kind of missing from the Fed's discussion, and I think we're going to hear a little bit more about this over the coming months, is that, hey, when you look kind of peel back the onion on inflation, it's actually not just headline. We actually have a real serious inflation problem 
here in the US and two statistics I will cite in support of that. Um, if you look at median CPI, which obviously looks at the median inflation rate of all the different things, the many things in the, in the, in the consumer price inflation basket, on a three-month sour basis, three-month annualized basis, we're at 6.4%. That's the all-time high in terms of the trending inflation impulse that we've observed in the economy on a median basis, you know, like the more higher than anything we've seen in, in prior inflation episodes. And if you look at it on a sticky CPI basis, so these are things that tend to have very lag changes in their prices. They tell the prices tend not to be very volatile. So things like rent, et cetera, um, sticky CPI on a three-month annualized basis at 6.6%. That's the fastest pace we've seen since August of 1990. So if there's if there's anybody at the Fed that still believes, which I don't believe at this point there are, but if there is anyone at the Fed that believes that hey, this is all headline, we can't do anything about it, they're they're mistaking, they're they're mis they're mis um, you know mis, mis misrepresenting the kind of supply and demand uh, imbalances in the economy. In one aspect of the market now is a safe area because we're seeing volatility in all of the asset markets and even gold which in my opinion should be rocking right now is really lagging. So mm -hmm. what's a safe area for an investor to look at? Is it just cash? Do we just wait in cash and, and hope it works out? Or, or what are you recommending to the people you talk to? Yeah, so it's a, that answer depends on uh, what you do for a living. If you're a professional investor and someone who can't sort of, let's call it, let's call it take their ball and go home by raising a significant amount of cash, you know, taking down your gross and net exposure, taking yeah, taking down your gross and net exposure, then you're someone who is sort of relegated to playing the sector and style factor battle within the equity and credit markets. Um, within the equity markets, it's pretty clear that you want to be in defensive, lower beta uh, type names. You know, low beta as a style factor, dividend yields as a style factor. You know, healthcare, consumer staples. You know, uh, sort of triple net REITs. Those types of um, those types of sectors and industry exposures. Um, you know, and obviously on the, on the short side, it's, you know, pretty clear anything high beta, anything growth, anything, um, you know, sort of, you know, kind of cyclical with the exception of energy, we would, we would caveat energy's on its own little cycle here. But, you know, so it's pretty clear from a dispersion perspective what to do in the equity and credit markets. It's also pretty clear that within the the, the fixed income markets that you're having a lot of, um, it, it's, it's a, sorry, I would say it's less clear to do what to do from a dispersion perspective in fixed income mar markets outside of just being, you know, super short duration across the board, across all products. Um, we would we would actually make the the case that spread products are to be sold as well, as sold on on strength as well, because we're certainly heading into. We, we believe that we're heading into a, a, a deeper, uh, faster deceleration in economic activity, actually on corporate margins and you know cash flow expectations, et cetera. If, however, you're not a professional investor, so those are the kinds of conversations I'm having with our you know what we call our proto pro subscribers. These are hedge fund, mutual fund, RA type investors. Who you know who need guidance on? Hey, I, I got this this egg and it's not going anywhere. So where do I? Well, how do I? How do I reinvest it, reallocate it? Um, and then there's the you know our you know sort of retail type subscribers. We have a lot of folks who kind of are native to the crypto space um, who subscribe to our macro research. And you know I tell them the same thing, which is a very different question, a very different answer than I just gave you. Which is if you have the ability to raise cash, go raise cash. Allow, go go allow yourself to sleep at night. This is the so I'll, I'll quote a stat. You know when we when we turned bullish in the fall of 2020, um, you know bombastically bullish at, at that point. I, I don't think I've ever been as bullish prior to 20. I think 2017 was like the only time I'd been more bullish in my career personally. Which was we we're saying, hey, look, there are five things that are about to happen, at least according to our models at the time. This is October 2020. That are about to happen that almost never happen at the same time. Growth's going to be accelerating. 
Inflation is going to be accelerating. Corporate profit growth is going to be accelerating. Margins will be expansion and all that good stuff in that in that bucket. But then you're also going to have aggressive monetary easing and aggressive fiscal easing. There've been like ten quarters, not like there've been ten quarters prior to that moment since 1960 that where all those things have happened at the same time. And obviously, you imagine you know the annualized returns on things like the S and P are extremely high. And I'm like, hey, we're about to get like three of these quarters back to back to back to back. Um, Q4 of, of 2020 and, and obviously Q1 uh, first half of 2021. And so it's no surprise in my perspective, from our perspective, that we saw such aggressive price appreciation in pretty much every financial asset. If you if, if you could if you if you couldn't tie it down with the ribbon, then it was it was floating away from a price perspective. Well, fast forward to today, we're effectively at the on the precipice of seeing the exact th- same dynamic, but in reverse, growth will be decelerating. Um, inflation is likely peaking. So by the time we get in the third quarter this year, we'll have inflation decelerating. We have corporate profit growth and margins compressing. We'll have uh, aggressive monetary tightening, aggressive fiscal tightening. It's literally the exact opposite scenario that created bubble price charts for every risk asset um, you know, known to man. And so the expectation that we're going to somehow survive the opposite of creating bubble price charts for every risk asset known to man is a f- one that's uh, it's a fallacy, in my opinion. And so understanding that it's a fallacy, the net most natural conclusion would be to say, hey, look, if you don't want to lose your stress over uh, trying to sort of trade every single wiggle in the market, because most wiggles are going to be, um, you know, angled down unless you have the ability to capture, generate returns consistently on the short side, you probably do well just to book your gains and give yourself some time and breathing room opportunity to wait and go buy assets that you like back at a lower price. You know, it's not it's not, you know, a lot of a lot of money is a lot of capital been lost by short sellers in bear markets. You know, that's when you get the largest sort of um, deviations to the upside, typically, um, in terms of squeeze risk. So it's hard managing bear markets. You mentioned uh, Bitcoin and crypto. How do macro headwinds drive the correlation between the stock market and digital assets? Because there was a narrative. Oh, it's an inflation hedge Mm -hmm. that turned out not to be true. So what's your your view on that? Yeah. So, I mean, so it's a risk asset. So let's start with part of the reason Bitcoin has become more and more correlated. I want to say right now, if you look at on a trailing three month basis, the correlation between that and the NASDAQ somewhere around all time high or just thereabouts. You know, the reason it's become so tethered and so correlated to these traditional financial assets is for two reasons. One, institutional adoption. Institutions by side, you know, they, they have, you know, very systematic risk management frameworks. If they have any capital at risk, you're not able to raise money at this in the last 10 years or so without all that institutionalized kind of risk management. Um, and, the rea- and the reality is if you have an asset that is as volatile as Bitcoin, it's going to be subject to some very strict risk management controls. Not to mention, as it continues to get incrementally correlated, you're going to have to continue to, do, to reduce the position size because it's COVID- the covariance between that and everything else in your portfolio continues to rise. And so just from an institutional risk management perspective alone, there's now kind of an underlying sell bid um, on, on in, in, in Bitcoin until this sort of volatility breaks down. Um, and then there's also sort of just broader human adoption, right? You know, mom and pop in Ecuador, you know, transitioning their, their life savings to Bitcoin and out of whatever currency Ecuador probably trades, I would imagine it's probably the dollar if I had to guess. But, you know, those types of stories. Well, if the global growth rate slows down and the income generation of those households and businesses slows down, particularly on a real basis, then there's less money to go into this ecosystem and capitalize, um, you know, the value of these coins and the, these, um, these, these, I don't want to say securities, but tokens. Um, and so that that's part of the reason why we're seeing, um, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these other digital assets really struggle in this particular moment because 
the bigger it gets, the more likely it is a macro trade. You know, and, and it's always been a macro trade. I mean, right? You know, you heard the story from day one in Bitcoin. It's central bank balance sheet expansion. It's inflation hedge. It's this. It's that. And all those things were imminently forecastable and modelable macro risks for anybody who's paying attention and, and doing the, the work. We all were in traditional finance space. We just weren't applying it to to, to, to digital assets. Well, you know, one thing we do, are very keen on at Forty Two Macro is weaving the digital asset ecosystem into our broader macro risk management framework to help investors understand kind of the types of risks they should be taking in the, in the crypto space. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Darius, you mentioned uh, current market conditions and the the slowdown in growth. What gets us out of this scenario that we're in right now to a much more trending and some may say comfortable market condition? Yeah, that's a great question. So typically what you're looking for, um, you know, if you're in a bad a bear market or something that looks like a bear market is obviously you want to be getting close to the point where either the growth slowdown is fully priced in. I think we're way too soon in this process for that to be the case. We're still comfortably growing comfortably above trend. We have to go to below trend, at least according to our models over the next 12 months. So that that's we're nowhere near that um, check mark, that checkbox. So then you so put the onus on the Fed. Okay, will the Fed pivot dovishly and allow asset that process of transitioning to a slower economy? Will it sort of you know offset that by balance sheet expansion, liquidity provision? Well, that seems to be the case that that's very unlikely to be the case. If anything, the Fed is pro-cyclically tightening. As the economy is slowing, the Fed is incrementally stepping on the brakes. And so uh, we don't think that, is, that that risk, that that bullish risk, that upside risk um, from a Fed pivot is something that should be um, priced into markets at the near term as well. So you kind of think about, okay, well, what else could cause a positive outcome in markets? Well, you know, the geopolitical resolution, although I'm not sure, we're, I think we're past the point of getting a quote-unquote resolution. And what I mean by quote-unquote resolution is the sanctions aren't going anywhere. You know, both the European Union and the U.S. Have, have accused Russia of committing war crimes. There's going to be a long tail associated with the prosecution of those war crimes. And until we figure out who's done what and who's responsible for what, it's very unlikely we see a, a removal of sanctions. Right. It's where, you know, there needs to be some sort of kind of you know uh, retribution, if you will, for, for alleged war crimes. And so that kind of leaves you with, the, OK, what happens on the inflation front? It's not our view that inflation is set up to, to collapse. If anything, I think inflation, the risk that inflation continues to surprise investors to the upside is actually quite high, um, at least according to our models, just based on the, 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 the stochastic momentum in the time series. I mean, you're, you're continuing to build momentum to the upside across a variety of inflation metrics. And so this sort of consensus view that inflation is peaking here, and it may very well peak on a year over year rate of change basis because the base effects start to really kick in, particularly in the month of April. But I don't think that matters. I think what really matters is, OK, what is the trending underlying rate of inflation? And right now it's somewhere around six to seven percent on a median and sticky basis, somewhere around 11 percent on a headline basis and around six percent on a core basis. Those numbers are all significantly higher than the Fed's two, two and a half percent inflation target. And so that to me is that that's the issue with inflation. But if for whatever reason, you know, we see let's call it, let's, you know, there's a there's for Again, I, I don't think this is a possibility, the, the highest probability, but if it's a possibility, I'll, I'll say it out loud. 
if we, for whatever reason, saw inflation sort of crash over the next two to three months, what you're likely to see is an inflation of real incomes as a function of that. And then you're likely to see sort of a much more kind of tepid pace of, of deceleration in the economy. It's going to be an economy that looks to be sort of, you know, kind of cooling on, a, on an organic kind of welcome basis. Like, hey, look, this is an economy that was overheating. It's now cooling. It's cooling at a, at a reasonable pace that we can price in, um, you know, kind of a positive market outcome. Um, in, in our nomenclature from a quantitative perspective, we call that a zero sigma delta growth slowdown. And so all that means is the the, the speed of the change of deltas on, on the, the differentials on growth are, are zero sigma relative to the trailing three-year sample. That usually has a positive 3%, or at least if you look at our back test uh, window, it's between January 1998 and present, but we also loop in uh, the inflation episode of the late 60s to the early 80s. And so we have those two samples to anchor on in terms of our back tests. You know, historically, a zero sigma delta growth slowdown is something like a 3% annualized return on the S&P. So that's that's nothing. That's a yawn. That's who cares if we're slowing at that pace. What matters and what I think will matter at asset markets in the back of the second half of this year is we're likely to head into what we call a two sigma delta growth slowdown. And that's a minus 29% annualized pace or annualized um, de decline in the S&P 500. So, you know, that that to me is, is the big issue. It's, hey, look, it's not just that we're slowing. It's that we could potentially be slowing at a much faster pace. And oh, by the way, there's going to come to a point in time if that's the case where it looks like the Fed is out to lunch as the economy is slowing, much like it did in Q4 of 18, right? That's exactly what happened in Q4 of 18. We're a long ways away from neutral, da 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 And guess what? No, 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 the economy is really starting to slow here. Repo market's starting to show signs of weakness. And you're over here talking about we're a long ways away from neutral. Well, let me crash and get your attention so you can pivot. And I think that's exactly what asset markets are setting up to do. What about commodities, Darius? Uh, commodity and, and the commodity trade has been hot over the last couple of months. How do you see this playing out for the next you know, foreseeable future? I don't want you to predict uh, years from now, obviously. No one can do that, as we know. But in the short term, you know, if I look at the DBC chart, it's still in a nice uptrend right now. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Great, great call out on, on DBC there. Uh, so we've been bullish commodities, but particularly um, in the energy and ag space. And the reason we were focused so much on energy and ag is because of the inelasticity of the, the supply demand curves. You know, with something like a, a base metal, um, which have you know done well, they've done well this year, or at least you know, a lot of them have up until recent weeks. Um, you know, we've seen you know those those demand curves tend to be a lot more elastic and a lot more sensitive to the growth outlook. And so clearly, what's going on in China from a COVID response perspective, but also just in terms of what we have forecasted for the global economy, you know, the outlook for base metals in particular is not particularly positive. Certainly within relative to other pockets of the commodity space. But, you know, we've liked commodity space more than equities, um, you know, in the last few months. And the reason we say that is because, you know, if we're wrong on the bearish outlook for growth, well, guess what? Well, we still are along with some risk assets and have an upside, have, you know, some some opportunity to participate in price appreciation associated with that, right? Like if we don't get the demand destruction that, you know, we ultimately inevitably do see coming. And so, it, you know, it puts a lot of onus on us to kind of book the trade at a, at a reasonable price before that occurs. But if we don't see that demand destruction, then guess what? We're long things that are going to go up and be the beneficiary of tight supplies and rising demand. Um, stocks will obviously do well in that particular environment as well. But I, I believe the commodities give you a better setup from there. Because again, if we do see something that looks like a geopolitical shock or, you know, kind of um, a fight for security, if you will, uh, for, you know, crude oil storage, energy storage, food, grain supplies, that could very easily materialize while growth is slowing. And so you kind of you got to get the best of both worlds from a commodity market perspective, which is you get protection on one hand from, you know, the meltdown, the fixed income market in terms of reallocating those assets. 
you get protection on the other hand from potential geopolitical in, in terms of um you know securing physical bearers of commodities and stockpiles of you know different cereals and grains etc and then you also get the potential risk that hey what if i'm wrong on the growth slowdown and everything's going to wind up being fine and you still get that upside um demand kicker on commodities so I mean, you have a lot more ways to win being long commodities relative to, to, to financial assets. Darius, could you touch a little on the sanctions uh, in Russia and, and how they have affected the ruble? You know, we saw them close their markets for a while and then the ruble dropped and then the ruble kind of came back up. And I was talking to someone over the week. They were like, well, I don't know why it came back up. Like what, what happened exactly? And do you think in the short term, this is bad for Russia, good for Russia? bad for the world? You know, how, how do you see this playing out uh, in terms of all the sanctions against Russia versus, I guess, the rest of the world? So Russia's, I mean, I want to say it's like the 11th or 12th largest economy. It's a, it's, it's, it's not big in terms of its demand impact on the world. Like the world doesn't sell Russia a lot of stuff, right? They don't have a big consumption economy, but they do are, they, they are meaningful, um, obviously export of, of natural resources. I want to say the world's Number two largest export of crude oil and that gas and coal, and number one I think in coal, um, number two or three in like you know steel things of that nature. So they they matter from the perspective of the physical goods economy, the manufacturing economy, you know, keeping your heat warm or home warm in the winter time, you know, particularly for large parts of Europe. So that stuff matters, and you know part of the reason we've seen the Russian ruble recover um, as you know even the, amid these sanctions is one, the sanctions have very conspicuously left off, you know, at least with respect to Europe, the the kind of the key core, you know exports of the of the of russian of the russian economy so the fact that we're not you know bringing in crude oil and that gas um really folding them into the sanctions on a meaningful way uh, tells you that a lot of the pain and weakness that we saw initially on the outset of the ruble was kind of overblown and overdone with respect to that and secondarily you also likely have a lot of capital controls uh being institute, instituted in russia i haven't had time to kind of dig into russia and, um, from that perspective but i would imagine that you know the central bank there the treasury the authority there uh, the fiscal authority there are sort of making it very difficult for Russian consumers and businesses to get their money out um, into different assets classes, and more importantly, probably making it um, quite quite onerous for Russian oligarchs to keep their money abroad in, in different places. And so, I'm guessing we're seeing some sort of regulation and rules being put in place for everyone to support the war effort back home in Russia. Darius, even in this conversation, I can tell the scope of everything that you need to look at and and follow and. And it, I mean, that has to be, it has to be hard. It has to be hard to follow so many because you're looking at the whole world, then you're looking at America, and then you're looking at all the different uh, things, CPI, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if someone is coming to you and interested in learning about macro, where do you point them to even get started? Yeah, that's a great question. So the thing that helps us out and helps us really kind of, you know, organize our thoughts and and really find go find the right things to research and focus on is really through our grid regime framework. Um, the regime segmentation really allows us to sort of kind of winsorize our sample of, 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 of you know potential outcomes into something that's a lot more manageable that we need to sort of get updates and check checkups at the margins on. And so when I say grid regime, that's just our four quadrant regime based framework uh, where G stands for Goldilocks. Uh, that's where growth is accelerating and inflation is decelerating. That tends to be very positive. For asset markets, uh, particularly risk assets, R stands for reflation. That's where growth and inflation impulses are both positive. Uh, that tends to be very negative for bonds, uh, positive for stocks, obviously, and commodities. Um, inflation, that's the I there in the grid. Um, that's where growth's decelerating and decelerating and inflation's accelerating. It tends to be negative for, for risk assets with the exception of commodities. And then lastly, you tend to have 
Uh, and D is D for deflation. That's where growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously. That's where you get the outsized excess returns and the dollar, you know, treasury bonds, et cetera, gold, things of that nature. And so that framework, <clears throat> being able to sort of, you know, forecast, build models to forecast growth and inflation in all these various economies and ultimately understand where they've been and where they're likely headed to in that framework speeds up the entire process of understanding what matters, right? If we know we're heading into this particular grid regime, well, here's how asset markets have historically performed in this grid regime. Here's the dispersion, likely dispersion you should anticipate. Here's the volatility and covariance across the different asset exposures. You know, so that really speeds up the process of helping investors construct thoughtful balanced portfolios that are designed to take advantage of some of these macro risks, right? There's two types of portfolios in the world. There's portfolios getting shocked by macro risk and there's portfolios that are prepared and you know sort of taking advantage of changes in these macro risks. And so that's what we try to do is help investors build um, the latter style of portfolio. Um, but you're right. It's it's a, it's a full time job to 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 know all this stuff. It's a it's a grind, but it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's I'm passionate about it. I would I couldn't even imagine doing anything else. It's, it's something that was I think I was put on earth to do. What are some must read books for mm-hmm. investors uh, that you lean into to really help you uh, tighten the screws in your in your trading and and really kind of uh, strengthen the foundation of what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my number one favorite book, I think everyone it's the number one book I tell every intern mentor I ever talked to. Go read this book. It should be the first book you read if you're walking into the financial services industry, uh, which is Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Um, that book explains everything you see on your screen from a behavioral standpoint, both to the mean side, to the you know to the institutional finance side, the CYA side of it all. Like there's so much in that book that once you learn, you can't unlearn from a human behavioral standpoint in terms of how human beings interact with the economy and asset markets. So that's that to me is number one. In fact, I highly recommend you read that every few years. I've read it three times already. Um, number two would be kind of the misbehavior of markets. Uh, ben Y. Mandelbrot, uh, Godfather of Fractal Math, um, sort of really kind of gives you kind of an eye-opening kind of introduction to sort of the relationship between price and volatility and asset markets and, and ultimately how to sort of weaponize volatility to actually, you know, kind of predict price and and um and to and to, to 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 kind of fold that into your risk management overlay. So that that's a super important book as well, because I think a lot of what we do from a quantitative signaling perspective really kind of is born out of a lot of those learnings. And it's not just us. I think a lot of investors have found a lot of value in in, in Mendel's Brot's work. And then lastly, as someone I, I strive a lot of uh, kind of um, you know, kind of value and thought leadership, too, is Ray Daly over at Bridgewater. Um, you say what you want about him at this point, but I, I don't think anybody gets anything about his ability to teach and, and, and educate us on some of these you know, core first principles type things that really drive the economy and asset markets in the long term debt cycle, changing world order. But, you know, my kind of introduction to Dalio came all the way back in, you know, 2009, 2010. Um, you know, I think I started in the business back in 09, um, which is kind of getting my hands on their their white paper for, for the all weather framework and understanding, hey, the power of regime segmentation uh, from an asset allocation and portfolio construction perspective. So, you know, kind of reading everything Ray Dalio's written since. Um, has really been uh, beneficial for my career and beneficial for our clients. Do you have any other resources that you like, uh, maybe on a, on a daily basis, you know, a few websites or, or things that you're checking out, if, you know, to kind of get yourself ready for the day? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I got some some buddies over at Spot Gamma, uh, my friend Brick Kachuba, Imran Laka over at uh, Options Insight. Uh, these guys do fantastic work. Uh, Alfonso Pecatiello over at the Macro Compass, uh, Andreas Stenel Larson. These are guys that, you know, sort of I kind of, you know, do interact with and, and do some work with, um, you know, just on my platform and on their platforms. And, you know, these guys have real great orthogonal type resources that kind of help me see the world from a different lens or, or kind of see through the world 
um, through, you know, the different lands that I'm currently kind of focused on. A lot of their stuff is really dealt in the ball space or kind of in some of the esoteric parts of the fixed income market. So that's really uh, super helpful uh, stuff is there. But there's also podcasts, too. I listen to a bunch of podcasts. Love uh, for guidance out of uh, uh, my man, Jack Farley. Uh, I think he's done a really fantastic job of, of you know, in terms of in introducing a brand new podcast. Obviously, shows like yours are very helpful as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a bevy of resources like I've never I'm so impressed and proud of where kind of, you know, finance has evolved in, in recent years. I mean, a lot of the stuff you see on FinTwit, these are the conversations I was having with, you know, macro hedge funds, you know, five, six, seven years ago yeah, that would never escape the room. But now you just see it like every every other day, every other week on Fintuit, there's a deep dive discussion, you know, about some esoteric pocket of the economy or, or global financial system. And there's so much information and clarity being provided and thought leadership being provided. So I'm very grateful to be part of that. I'm very grateful to take advantage of it. Well, and and we're very grateful as viewers to uh, to watch contributions like what you do. You know, you release your daily macro minute and you're always uh, putting stuff on Twitter. And so you're contributing uh, to, you know, to these great conversations. So thank, thank you for all of that. Appreciate you, Scott. Thank you, man. What are some misnomers, Darius, about macro investing that you wish people knew? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say the number one thing that I, I think investors get right or get wrong that don't understand macro is sort of making their portfolio reflect a singular macro view. Like the, at all times, there's always a range of probable outcomes. And now sometimes the range is very narrow. You know, the distribution has a significant amount of excess kurtosis. Other times you can have a very flat leptocratic distribution where, you know, there's a lot of stuff that could happen on the tails that, you know, that has a much higher probability that you need to allocate um, resources to, 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 to protect yourself against. And so one, understanding that the shape of the distribution of probable outcomes changes over time and is a function of the likely changes in, in path for for growth and inflation and the policy reaction function therein, but also just making sure that your portfolio is acknowledging and of that of that dynamic. Um, you know, you if you're bullish, you, you don't want to be 100% long. You know, whatever you're bullish on, or you know, if you're bearish, you don't want to be 100% bearish on whatever you're bearish on. That's the, the more thoughtful thing to do, and the reason why professional investors consistently outperform and consistently have better sort of risk-adjusted returns than uh, regular you know retail investors or you know kind of mom and pop investors. Is the fact that they understand that there's a distribution of outcomes and so they're layering their bets not just across different themes you know our themes would be go, you know goldilocks reflation inflation deflation someone else's theme could be china tech consumer story versus you know us autos and housing you know they, they're layering their bets across themes but they're also layering their bets across durations hey i got these things that i'm long and short that i think should you know kind of mod i can monetize over the next two to three months here these are things that i expect to continue building positions in that if these things go my way, I'm probably going to get an incrementally better price to, to buy into you know, for kind of a six to nine month setup or you know nine to 12 month setup. So it's understanding that, hey, look, you don't have to be in one singular bet. You don't have to be in operating in just one singular duration in order to make money. In fact, you're probably going to do a better job if you don't do those things. Is macro investing mostly about broad sector bets or ETFs or do you ever look at individual stocks? You can you can apply macro to individual stocks. I mean, particularly some of these large mega cap stocks that have you know become real indicative of the broader you know macroeconomic cycle. Um, they're obviously secular growers, but there's a point to you get to a point where you're so big that even though you might be a secular grower, you're still going to be very much tethered to the broader uh, economic and financial market cycle. I, I think of Netflix very much as a, as a function of that. You know, I think of 
Google, you know, these types of companies, you know, Facebook, obviously, you know, they're tethered to the advertising cycle. You know, Netflix is tethered to, you know, the income cycle and, and people's willingness to spend, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 dollars on, you know, one of their 10, you know, <laughs> you know uh, uh, streaming services. And so, uh, you know, there's, you know, you you get to a point where you're, 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 you're so big that you are the economy. And so I do believe that is an issue with some of these stocks. Um, but broadly speaking, you know, you can you can try to do those things. But I think one of the things that I think I would I would caution against as an investor is assuming that you can apply one framework for every single market situation, every single trading setup. That's just not the case. You're a swing trader. I know for a fact that you you, you will back me up on that. Um, it's you know, it's not always the same setup. You, you not always use the same models and the same tools. What you're trying to do, obviously, is find a tool or a set of tools that is pretty consistent in helping you generate returns and relying on that. And more importantly, evolving that tool as you sort of get information along the way, because obviously you got to have false positives and things of that nature. For long-term investing, how do you go about recommending portfolio construction? You know, uh, I don't need individual, you know, I'm not looking for you to share your secret sauce with, with us here today, but just in general, you know, how, how do you recommend people come up with a balanced portfolio for broad market conditions? Yeah, so it's it's it starts with understanding where you are today, how long you're going to be in this type of environment, this type of regime from a growth, inflation, policy and positioning standpoint. Those are the, what I would consider to be the four principal components of macro risk management. And where are you going to be tomorrow, you know, from a growth, inflation, policy and positioning standpoint, and then understanding the sort of relative you know, risk and return or risk and reward for the different asset classes and the exposures within those different asset classes. And how the, the the those risk and reward values are likely to change as you go from you know you know regime A into regime B. Um, there's a lot of math and work that goes into that um, from an expected return, expected percent positive ratio, expected volatility, expected covariance, um, you know, kind of standpoint. Um, but we do all that work for for our subscribers and clients at 42 Macro. So I would highly recommend you know folks come check us out. You know, you don't need to be a millionaire, a gazillionaire, or you know, running a big firm or at a big hedge fund. Uh, to, to to subscribe and get a lot of value from our resources. Quite frankly, I think you know the the the, the less resources you have as an investor, the more likely it is you can get value uh, from what it is that we're putting out at a very reasonable price. Why do you think you're so passionate about this type of investing? Uh, because there are so many different types of of ways to make money in the stock market. Why do you think, for you personally, this is kind of what you're most passionate about? You know, uh, to be honest with you, it just this is what clicked in my head. I, when I first started in the business, uh, I was a retail analyst covering, you know, retail stocks like, you know, Walmart, et cetera. And, you know, I did that for about six, nine months. And, you know, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. It wasn't as, um, you know, putting together the puzzle wasn't as exciting. You know, put it when you put together a macro puzzle, it's like having like a thousand piece puzzle on a small table, right? And, it, you know, just, uh, God, you got to pick up all these different pieces and, and find the uh, and find and figure out how they fit together, and ultimately you'll find a, you generate and create a framework that allows you to do that at a high level on a consistently iterative basis. And when I did that with companies, it was like this is a twenty-five piece puzzle or fifty-piece puzzle on a big table. Like it's a lot easier to put together the pieces of the puzzle. Now that doesn't mean that picking stocks is easy. I think picking stocks is extremely difficult because one thing that is uh, more of a factor in stock picking than it is in broader macro trends is you know sentiment and and What's the buy side think? What's the sell side think? What's the whisper number? Who thinks what? Who just sold what? You know, like that that stuff matters a lot more in, in stock picking. And I think that's probably more than half of the job. But the easy half of the job, which is just, okay, they, they're going to give you all the data 
you put it all into the spreadsheet, it's going to give you a valuation of the company. It's pretty easy on that part. So I, I didn't get a lot of value out of that stuff, but I did get a lot of value in sort of macro and particularly macro risk management because it wasn't this sort of, it, it was kind of the wild west when we were really kind of, you know, setting out to do that, um, to build, you know, the, the framework that I built at Hedgeye. And then obviously we built, uh, you know, some somewhat of a similar framework here at 42 Macro, which is, hey, look, this was, oh my God, like only only the, 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 the hallowed halls of places like Bridgewater, you know, we're kind of doing this and you figure out that, hey, well, not everyone, you know, everyone's doing some version of this. If you look at um, some of the major hedge funds across Wall Street and obviously the sell side as well. But at the time where I was like, hey, look, this is a lot. This is going to allow me to put together that puzzle a lot easier, a lot faster, a lot more iteratively. So that's just how it clicked for me. And then lo and behold, everyone turn, turns out <laughs> everyone's using some version of regime segmentation. Darius, you work uh, pro to pro. That's one of the major uh, services that you offer at 42 Macro. What are some of the most common questions you're getting lately uh, from other pros? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so that's a, that's a, that normally that's a, like a, a very narrow distribution depending on what's recently happened in the markets this year, it's been all over the place, man. I mean, I've been getting questions on, you know, like what's the, what's QT going to look like? Is QT going to bite is kind of the number one question I'm getting from a pocket of our, our, our clients. Um, and what I mean by that is sort of, you know, in terms of how we calculate the feds um, liquidity provision for asset markets in the economy, you know, we factor in the Fed's balance sheet, but also the Treasury General account balance. And sometimes those things are moving, um, you know, kind of um, in, in a way that both promotes liquidity provision. Sometimes they're moving in both in a way that promotes removing liquidity uh, from the economy and asset markets. And sometimes they're kind of going in opposite directions and you don't really know what to make of it. And it's like, you know, there's all these kind of moving levers that both uh, both um, both authorities could pull to change the pace and, and shape of, of the balance sheet and, and the Treasury General account balance. So right now, you know, there's kind of this awkward setup where if they wanted quantitative tightening to be very kind of toothless, you know, Janet Yellen could do that. I mean, the Treasury General account balance is very inflated right now at $900 billion. She could actually drain that throughout the balance of the year and not issue any incremental net new paper and allow quantitative easing to be just kind of passively easily absorbed by the financial system. Now, that doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense to me in terms of our uh, the lack of progress that they've made in terms of um, um, you know, beating down the inflation dragon, but it's a risk and it'd be a very extremely positive risk for asset markets. And so that's the kind of uh, one thing we've been talking about from a plumbing perspective, from a growth perspective, I think the number one thing I've been having conversations about is the upside risk to growth over the near term. Um, Cause everyone's sort of focused on the downside risk to growth over the near term. But one thing that, you know, the institutional investors that I talked to and, and certainly I myself haven't lost sight of is the fact that, Hey, look, the yield curve, invert it, but then it's steepened massively. And I don't hear anybody talking about how much it's steepened, right? And so did the yield curve kind of get too far ahead of itself in terms of predicting and projecting a growth slowdown? You know, maybe this sort of concept of, you know, this uh, sort of excess savings, if you will. And again, we think the excess savings that, to the extent that they exist, which we can still observe it, is largely concentrated in the upper income cohorts. And so could those that upper income cohort really come save the day from a growth perspective over the next few quarters? Um, while inflation kind of grinds lower um, into the back end of the year. That's something that is a legitimate possibility. Again, I don't think it's the modal outcome. Our, our models are suggesting that's not the modal outcome, but it's a, it's a legitimate possibility. So I'm having those kinds of conversations. When we're talking to institutional investors, institutional investors understand the, the, the kind of the baseline. Generally speaking, I spend most of my time talking about the, the risk to the, the outlook um, when I'm on those, in those meetings. Talk to me a little bit about the yield curve. You know, I've heard more about the yield, the the, the two year and the ten year. 
what are these exactly? Why do they matter? And why is an inversion something that investors should be concerned about? Yeah, so I mean, the yield curve is is is, is, is as historically has been one of the best predictors of you know recession um, in the economy. And typically, what happens is you get an inversion uh, in the yield curve, and that typically proceeds. And what I mean by yield curve is the spread of the yield of the ten-year Treasury yield minus the yield on the two-year Treasury yield. That inversion typically is a sort of longer lead time inversion. You, know, you typically wind up in recession somewhere between twelve and twenty-four months after that that persistent inversion um, in the yield curve. Um, but with, there's also other yield curves. There's the five thirties that tends to be kind of what's you know inflation expectations relative to terminal uh, expectation on policy. There's the, the tens three three month uh, three month bill yield uh, ten year yield minus three month bill yield. That tend, when that goes inverted, you typically are you know in a recession or some very close to a recession. So there's all these different sort of you know term premiums across the treasury market that give investors you know kind of a uh, that send a signal, if you will, back to the Fed, back to the broader economy, you know, that, you know, something might be very right. You know, if they have a very steep, you know, positively upward sloping yield curve and a bear steepener or something could be very wrong. If a bear flattener or even worse, a bull flattener um, is telling you that there's some deflationary pressure. So investors like myself, um, economists, probably you know, policymakers, we're all watching the slope and shape and changes in the yield curve as a signal from the bond market that, OK, X, Y, Z is priced in. And then it's it's either changing at the margin or getting uh, getting stronger. Wow, Darius, we have covered a lot here today, and I think this is going to be one of those interviews people have to watch over and over, uh, wow. just to soak in all of the good stuff that you've uh, shared with us. How can people find you, get in touch with you, and connect? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I really thank you for having me on. This is a wonderful discussion. I always like getting back to the basics. I, I feel like I've been uh, blessed with the ability to teach. Some of these advanced concepts. So I'm going to definitely do do what I can to to share my knowledge uh, with the community. Um, so come come check me out. I'm at uh, we're at 42 Macro, uh, my partners and I, and then I'm at uh, on Twitter at 42 Macro D Dale D D A L E. I'm pretty prolific there as well. So uh, come check us out. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time, Darius. I appreciate you. Appreciate the work that you uh, put out. Uh, and like I said, I'm a huge fan. So this has been uh, this has been a fantastic day for me. So thank you. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for having me. I'll catch you back next time. From the bottom, make no half stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. 
Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirtbags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.